Can we turn to Romans 9 tonight, please? A couple of announcements. Well, three maybe. Treasures for Children campaign. I see the box out there is full. That's good. Keep it coming till December 10th. Collecting toys for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army. No guns or knives, real or toy, not even toys. So, what? no Nerf guns even. No, you can't even. I know, that's what they armed you with when you were in the Navy. But, <laughs> but uh, it's okay, you can get me back. Uh, another, what is it? Announcement. Um, tomorrow night, we were going to have service. But as I got into the office, our resident meteorologist, uh, Darth, Darth Sadar, um, <laughs> he actually has a picture of Darth Vader on his latest article in uh, the Times. What? Washington Times. Look it up. But he was visibly shaking, and he didn't want me to mention this, but he was even tearful. Because tomorrow's weather is going to be so terrible that we can't have service. It's supposed to be a, an advisory up until about 7. So we don't want to endanger you. So whatever you're planning tomorrow night, backsliding or coming here, don't come here. Don't backslide either. Okay, what else did I have to announce? Oh, next, next week there's no midweek services at all. Because there's that forced turkey day. First they force feed the turkeys, then they force feed us with turkey. The one time a year you have to eat turkey when you don't feel like it, even if you don't feel like it. That's called Thanksgiving. And um, we do that pretty much every day anyways, but that's the holiday. I've had it before on Wednesday, go back and forth year to year, but sometimes the attend the attend well, people being there is one thing, and when they're there, sometimes their minds are on other things. All of you accept it, of course, but it's just not a proper time. So, is that it? Romans chapter 9. Sunday, last Sunday on Veterans Day, I began a series called What is Faith? And it began with faith is faith as perception. I hope to continue that somehow, maybe on Sundays. The second part of that will be faith as participation. Third will be faith as the faithful death of Christ himself, the faith equating itself with Christ himself. There's a time in the scripture several times when faith is actually a synonym for Jesus Christ himself. And that will be the third increment of faith. There's some important things coming up. And tonight I want to begin with what we call an excursus. I learned pretty much what these are by studying some heavyweight theologians. Excursus is a Latin. It just simply means excursion or digression. And I, in studying Galatians while I was away, and I did study two or three or four hours every day, um, I was studying... Martinus C. De Boer from Amsterdam and in Holland. He's a phenomenal scholar who happens to be an apocalyptic theologian. And his best stuff in his commentary was when he took time to do an excursus in small print. And I actually started to write them out. Bernard Lonergan once said that if you really want to remember a segment of reading that you're reading or a book that you're reading, sit down and actually write it out. And so I wrote it out five or six pages Verb, word by word, and his excursus on the faith of Christ, another one on the cross of Christ. And so a, what we usually call a digression is an excursus or an excursion, but digressions are sometimes the most important parts of a discourse. And so tonight I want to start with an excursus that I want to call bibliology, the science or study of the Bible or the scriptures, or bibliolatry, one of the hidden idols in our culture and one of the most 
deftly concealed idols in Christendom is bibliolatry. And we want to tackle that tonight because many times in Romans, Paul says, as it is written, as it is written. Paul's opponent also says, as it is written, as it is written. There are at least four and 14 times when that happens. So I want to look at this, and I hope you'll understand. But I'm not worried about it because the Holy Spirit gives understanding. So let's take a couple moments to prepare with silent preparation, which is just our way of saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Father, even as I did Sunday, I want to express once again before this assembly my immense gratitude to you for the t- those who taught and proclaimed the word in my absence and for this faithful congregation gathering around what ended up being some extraordinary and even historic messages. And we thank you for gathering again tonight. May the Holy Spirit make very clear what is about to be said about your son, Jesus Christ. May you therefore be glorified in him. May he be magnified in my body and in all of us. And may the Holy Spirit be free to make clear the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So an excursus, or we might call a digression, before we continue in Romans chapter 9. A question of great importance arises in Romans. Since the scripture is appealed to so many times in the dialectic between Paul and his adversary. The question is, what carries the greatest weight for Paul? The scriptures, meaning the Old Testament writings, the writings of the prophets, the Torah, Psalms, or what he calls several times in Galatians, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. For example, Galatians 2, 5, 2.14, 4.16, 5.7, the truth of the gospel. What carries the greatest weight for Paul? The scriptures or what we call the truth of the gospel, which was apocalyptically disclosed to Paul and which Paul preaches. For sure, Paul uses scripture in his argument throughout Romans, all the way to the very end, where he actually has a catena or a waterfall as a cascade of scriptural references in Romans 15, 7 through 12. So Paul for sure uses scripture in his argument throughout Romans to the very end. But for Paul, what is the weightier matter? Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and dill and cumin and you fast and you do this and you do that but you skip over the weightier matters of the law and then he said what they are love justice or righteousness and the mercy of God so we're talking about what is the weightier matter it's clearly in my view What for Paul was the weightier matter is the salvific truth of the gospel as embodied in Jesus, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I would ask the question, what is greater, the reality, capital R, or the witness to the reality? The scriptures are the witness to the reality that is Jesus in whom all of the uncreated fullness of divinity resides bodily and in whom all of the redeemed creation resides bodily. The very purpose of prophecy, the very essence and spirit of prophecy as we learned from Revelation 19, 9 and 10, the very essence, purpose, meaning of prophecy 
is a testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. What is greater than the testimony or Jesus? The truth of the gospel is of greater weight and value than even that of the scriptures because, like John the baptizer, they point to Jesus himself. Now, let me illustrate this. In any case, Paul's gospel reveals what was silent for ages in the writings of the prophets, what was silent for ages in the writings of the prophets. And that is the apocalypse of a mystery, namely the mystery of God's irrevocable intention. And this is where it gets to the heart of the matter. God's irrevocable intention to salvifically gather up all of created reality with all of uncreated reality in the Messiah who is Jesus, the head of all things, who is currently the head of the proleptic new creation, which is his body, the church. The church now exists, according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, as the proleptic fullness. That's the fullness so far of him who fills up everything with himself. It is wrong to say that the scriptures are Jesus or that they are somehow equivalent to his person. They are the testimony to Jesus. The scriptures in their totality are not Jesus, the Son of God, and they are in no way equivalent to him. To say that this is true is to be a bibliolater, an idolater worshiping the scripture or the Bible as an idol. Of all the hidden idols of Christendom, this may be one of the most carefully concealed ones. The scriptures in their written totality exist as the testimony to Jesus. In other words, Jesus shines light on the scriptures and interprets the scriptures. Jesus Christ and him crucified, not the other way around primarily. So then the scriptures in their written totality exist as the testimony to Jesus compared to Jesus himself. Even the scriptures diminish in importance. For this reason, Jesus said to his scholarly opponents, listen carefully to what he said. You keep searching the scriptures because you think, you presume, you, you assume or presume that in them you have eternal life, which is the life of the coming age. Yet they testify of me, Jesus said. Yet they testify of me. In other words, they are pointing to a greater reality. They testify of me. What he's saying is the scriptures do not impart life. They testify of the one who is life and who, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 44, 45, the one who is a life-giving spirit. And then he said in John 5:40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They testify about me, Jesus said. They bear witness to me, Jesus said. So here we must distinguish bibliology, which is a very important science, bibliology from bibliolatry, which is a making the Bible itself into an idol. It's been suggested one writer said, and I don't know how much this is true or even if it's true, but it is suggestive. One author said that Protestants tend to be 
bibliolaters, and Catholics tend to be ecclesiolaters or worshipers of the church. But I don't know, that may be somewhat of an unfair generalization. But it gets the point across. Bibliolatry. And again, it is very important. A man cannot say that the sum total of the written word is equal to the person of Jesus Christ. That's bibliolatry. That is a bibliolatry. It's a serious error. They testify about me, or he could say they bear witness to me. So who is greater? The scripture, even if it's personified, as it is in Galatians 3.8, the scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. The scripture, even if it's personified, who is greater? What is greater? The scripture or the person about whom they bear witness? The truth of the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the reality of God. All of uncreated reality. Colossians 2 9 says, All of the fullness of divinity, uncreated reality, is in him somatikos, bodily, literally bodily. The truth of the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the reality of God, but he is also the reality of humanity. And he is the reality of all created reality. Colossians 1, 18 to 19. In him all the fullness of creation was pleased to dwell. So, in our excursus, our digression, which is an important one, the scriptures are not greater than he is, any more than John the baptizer is greater than Jesus, even though John B., John the baptizer, was the greatest man born of a woman until Jesus, in Jesus' own estimation. John the Baptist, the one who proclaimed in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 in verse 1 and following, was right to say, I must decrease and he must increase. With Jesus, even the scriptures decrease in glory. Not that they are not priceless, they are. Not that they are not priceless as the testimony to Jesus. But in the glaring light of the one of whom they have borne witness. In that light, they really have no glory at all. In the eternal future, this might shock you. This is my strong opinion. In the eternal future, we will not be reading the Bible. Or searching the scripture. We will be worshiping God and the enthroned lamb. We won't have to go back to the Bible to see if what we're seeing is true. When that which is perfect comes, Paul put it, that to whom prophecy points, in other words, then even prophecy will cease. Just as the Torah of Moses, the law of Moses, once had a glory, which is now no glory at all in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3. So even the scriptural witness, glorious as it is, fades into shade. In the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Now here's a caveat. None of this excursus or this digression means that the witness of the scriptures is not invaluable. It is. To us now. 
The point is that the teacher, as Douglas Campbell called him, I prefer to call him, and I will as I do distillation of Romans, the interlocutor, someone who's a voice put in there to be an opponent to Paul, which is either a teacher or the viewpoint of a certain teacher, a Jewish Christian missionary teacher. We're going to run into these again. If we do Galatians, there's a whole bunch of them. DeBoer called them the new preachers. Lewis Martin called them the teachers, capital T, and that's where Douglas Martin got his idea of the teacher, capital T, individual teacher in Romans, and he believed that the dialogue was a Socratic dialogue, or which I call a dialectic of contradictories. And sometimes that teacher uses scripture. And Paul will let him say what he's going to say just so he can take all the air out of it and put it in the proper context and refute it. Paul always interpreted from the standpoint of a revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ in him having been crucified. That's the only light in which the scriptures make sense. The Jewish Christian writers or the Jewish Christian missionaries that oppose Paul believe that Jesus Christ died for the past sins of national Israel. And that was the effect of his cross. That was the limit to the effect of his cross. So when they went out and proselyted Gentiles, they believed that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved on top of Christ dying for them. And then to follow the law completely. And another shocker, James, who wrote James, was complicit in this false gospel. Paul and James did not agree in Galatians, did not agree. James fell flat on his face. So did Peter. And it's quite possible that we know Peter came around. But James, a lot of what James says is part of that whole idea of doing the law and justification by works. And so you really have to think hard through James to, to figure out some stuff here. And does it make sense in the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified? What is the justifying reality if it's not Christ himself? So... That's all. That was a digression from our digression. That was a, an excursion from our excursion. So I want to just close the excursion by saying the point that for our purpose is that this interlocutor or this teacher, this opponent in Romans, uses the Scripture as if it testifies to a rectification of persons by the works of the law, even though the same preacher will tell you that Christ died for the past sins of Israel. So because Christ died for the past sins of Israel, then the Gentiles better become Israel by circumcision and then by the following of the law. That's their idea. What a pathetic gospel that is. It's not a gospel at all, Paul said. And so Paul uses the scripture, on the other hand, which he respects immensely as a testimony to the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ. And this is the truth of the gospel, which is the gospel of God about his son in Romans 1, 1 and 2, which Paul calls my gospel in Romans 2, 16. And in Romans 16, 25 and 26. And so the truth of the gospel is what I am laboring to allow to remain with you here tonight. The truth of the gospel to remain here with you tonight. Even as Paul did so to allow the gospel to remain with the Gentiles in Galatians 2.5. And so, whoever is listening to this and wherever after tonight, that's why we do what we do. The truth of the gospel is Jesus, about whom the scriptures bear witness. So ultimately, the scriptures must be interpreted in the light 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not Paul's gospel in the light of the scriptures. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which I call a sublime phrase in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, shone into Paul's heart. And that's the light that interprets the scriptures. The very purpose of which is to testify about him. Romans, the epistle then was written in this light, in the light that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. Romans, the epistle was written let's say, with this light on and its author. So that this light would also shine in our hearts and so that we would carry this immeasurable, inestimable treasure around with us in earthen vessels, which are the very bodies in which we groan, waiting with all creation for our ultimate liberation from corruption. So far from dishonoring the scriptures by putting him in their proper slot under the fulfiller of scriptures, the fulfillment of them, we then have a new respect for them that we can never have by idolizing those same scriptures. So Romans 9, verse 18, just to pick up where we left off, remember our whole design here is that the center of Romans, which we've pushed from the left and the right flank, is a double center, Romans 5 through 8. Romans 5 through 8 is designed under Ephesians 2, 4. But God in his great love and richness of mercy, his richness of mercy because of the greatness of his love. Romans 9 through 11 is about God's richness of his mercy, which is for all. He has mercy upon all. Romans 5 through 8 begins with his great love and ends with his great love. And in the center of the center of Romans is Romans 8.31. God is for us and he gave his son, did not spare him, but gave him up freely for us all, all, all. The two mountain peaks that we're interested in then right now is Romans 8.32 and Romans 11.32. And 8.32 God gave his son on behalf of us all. 1132, God shut up all of humanity into one place in order to have mercy upon all. The one place where God shut us all up is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one place, the one place. So Romans 918, so then, as God said to Moses, Exodus 33, 9, cited in Romans 915, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. And he hardens whom he will. You, this is Paul saying, into the teacher or the interlocutor or some other objector, we could say, you may say to me, or he might even be anticipating the reader of Romans saying this to to him, then why does he still find fault? Looking to Hebrews 8.8, for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O mere man, to answer back to God? Will the thing that is molded Say to the one who molded it, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have no right to make from one mass of clay? And we related that phrase, one mass of clay, to the whole of humanity in Adam, who was made of the clay of the earth. Adam is the man from the dust of the earth, the earthly man. One mass of clay then takes up all of humanity. God can make from one mass of clay a piece of pottery for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Why can't he? Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience? In other words, what if he decided instead of expressing wrath that he would endure and put up with patience, patiently? Vessels of wrath. What if God, waiting to sh- wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience? Remember 2 Peter 3.15, the patience of the Lord is salvation, is a theme in all of Paul's epistles. God did want to show his wrath, incidentally. God did want to show his wrath. And so he did on sin, on death, and on Hades. 
Hades is just a name for a summary of all the adverse powers against us. I will build my church, says Christus Faber, Christ the Builder. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. The gates of Hades is the word. Hades then summarizes all the adverse, inimicable, apocalyptic, cosmic powers against us. Sin, death, principalities and powers, and the law as abducted by and used by sin. So does the potter have no right to make from one mass of clay a piece of pottery for, di- for honorable use and other for dishonorable? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath that were made to throw away? That means vessels for mere temporary use. And in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us, Paul says, whom he has called. That means ultimately he is called into existence as a new creation. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call not my people. That's a nickname, not my people. God likes nicknames. Jesus likes nicknames. The sons of thunder, for example, for John and James. I was telling my grandson Cole yesterday, I like to give nicknames. And he said, me too. And he has a friend he calls the turtle. And I said, well, why do you call your friend the turtle? And he said, because he always wears turtlenecks. And not only that, he walks slow in the hallway at school and makes everybody else walk slow. Two reasons. That's perfect nickname, the turtle. But God called Israel at one point in history, not my people. You are not my people. So, in verse 25, as he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people. Change their name. And not loved, beloved, meaning greatly loved. Notice Ephesians 2.4 again. And in the very place, now this is very important, in the very place, the same place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. In the same place. Where is that place? Calvary. Here Paul is actually profoundly stressing the truth of the gospel as the interpreter of scripture. For the place God finally says to the same people both not my people and not loved on the one hand, and the sons of the living God, and greatly loved on the other hand, to the same people. That place is in the Christ event, in Jesus Christ, and him having been crucified. To make you understand it a little better, we could say that in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God said, not only to Israel, but to all human beings, you are not my people. And in the resurrection of the crucified Jesus, God said, not only to all of Israel, but to all human beings, the whole mass of clay, we could say, in the humanity who was once represented in Adam, you are now the sons of the living God. You, represented by Adam, the bearer of your destinies, you're not my people. But you, the same people, in Christ, under Christ, and in union with him who now bears your destiny, you're not only my people, you are greatly loved. You are loved with the same love that I have for my son. You are the sons of the living God. And there's neither male nor female in Galatians 3.20, so he also talks about daughters, and I'll hit that in a minute. Maybe. Where else tomorrow night? Not tomorrow night. Jeez, we can't even go now because Tony was so nervous about the weather tomorrow. He got me scared. So, 
the next time. I guess I better move on here. In the course of human history, God used his prerogative, prerogative, to bear with patience vessels, that's people, that in themselves are fit to be destroyed. You ever hear, fit to be tied? I was fit to be tied. Well, we were fit to be destroyed. God uses vessels that are fit to be destroyed in order to bring salvation to the whole of the human race. The interlocutor, that's I-N-T-E-R-L-O-C-U-T-O-R, a word that I prefer now that I've studied Romans for a hundred and some, well, multiply that by eight, about 800 hours. Doug Campbell called him the teacher. I'll say the interlocutor sees that Paul has an indifferent, an entirely different take on the cross. And we ought to see this. Paul has an entirely different take on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as his opponent and his band of Jewish Christian missionaries. Paul sees the cross as being universally salvific, salutary, delivering, saving, redeeming, universally. Paul sees it that way. In other words, as having all the saving power that's needed for all of humanity and then some. You say, how can it be all of humanity and then some? Because it's also for all the redemption of all creation, including the angelic sphere. If you really believe Colossians 1.20, you'll know that. So, that's how Paul sees the cross. The apostle is entirely aware of the views of his opponents, and he allows them to be aired, only to shut off their air supply. So that the truth of the gospel, embodied in Jesus, the truth of God about his son will continue to abide in this world. Romans 9, verse 27. Let's continue. Is this an objection from the teacher? I'm asking you this. Is this an objection from the teacher or the interlocutor? Or is it Paul anticipating an objection and holding it off or heading it off? Either one. It doesn't matter in this case. It doesn't matter if it's Paul letting his opponent speak as something he knows he stands for, or whether Paul is anticipating an objection here and then heading it off. He says this, but Isaiah, it sounds like an objection to me, because Paul has just pretty much talked about the universality of the redemption of Christ in the cross, and this almost sounds like somebody objecting using the Scripture. But Isaiah cries over Israel, saying, Though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 28, For the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. This is actually a quote of Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. But let me show you what Isaiah 10 and 22 and 23 says in the Septuagint. It says, and though the people of Israel become as the sand of the sea in number, only a remnant will be saved. He, that is God, will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will accomplish a short work in all the inhabited earth. So here, this is very tricky, but it, it's beautiful. Here, the opponent of Paul, or it could be Paul airing an objection that he anticipates, brings in, brings in a scripture from Isaiah in order to refute the obvious universalistic direction of Paul's argument. Paul's argument is obviously universalistic. So I say either the teacher or the interlocutor or Paul himself, even if a specific opponent is not raising objections throughout Paul's argument, Paul nevertheless lets certain scriptures be quoted in apparent defense of his opponent. 
so that he can properly contextualize those verses and by doing so, refute the opponent's faulty argument. I know that's a lot to handle. But it's also important to note that the Hebrew text of Hebrews 10.22, or Isaiah rather, Isaiah 10.22b, which this Jewish Christian opponent would definitely have in his quiver, the Hebrew text of of Isaiah 10.22b says, a destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. What does that mean? Well, Fleming Rutledge, and I remembered this. I do have partly photographic memory because I remembered where it was on the page. I just couldn't remember the page. She indicates that what Isaiah clearly says here in Isaiah 10.23 or 10.22b is that the condemnation of Jesus means redemption for the world. She understands, in other words, Christ crucified. That God decrees destruction overflowing with righteousness, and righteousness we've learned in Romans 1.17, therein is the righteousness of God apocalyptically revealed. The righteousness of God, dekaiosune, which is in this very passage, means the saving act of God in Christ enacted in his crucifixion and resurrection. So the destruction that God decrees is total, but it's overflowing with deliverance. In other words, at the same time, there is destruction and salvation. There's destruction of humanity in the Adamic ontology, in the condemnation of Jesus, and there is deliverance of a new humanity in the resurrected Christ under a new Christian ontology, a new creation. So Fleming Rutledge got it right. She adds, the cross of Christ, listen to what she said. I can't believe I was thinking of this, and then I remember she said this. The cross of Christ is the place where we see most clearly the relationship between judgment, she has in parentheses, condemnation and destruction, and the righteousness of God experienced both as judgment and and redemption. We have already noted very well that righteousness, dikasune, a key word in Romans, especially 117, in the key verse of Romans, means the act of God's universal deliverance in Christ enacted at the cross. Once again, the interpretive key is Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. I determined to know nothing, Paul said, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know what he's saying there? I don't use any other key for interpreting the scriptures except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what it's all talking about. And so the destruction and the deliverance are both in the place called the Christ event. The Calling of some sheep and some goats and division of the both is one place, Calvary's cross. The throne upon which he sits is the cross of Calvary. And he calls the same one mass of humanity, not my people in their Adamic ontology as a clay mass in Adam, and he calls them in the same place, my people. In the same place he says not loved, he calls us Greatly loved at the cross of our Savior, Christ Jesus. I personally, my testimony, I interpret Scripture that way too. I have seen it that way too. I see it no other way. I see it in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And therefore, any Scriptures that are cited that have something not to do with that It's my job to put that scripture underneath that interpretation. The truth of the gospel is the means of interpreting the scripture, not vice versa. I refuse to be a bibliolater. So, now that's a tough one because I just kicked open the chest in which Christendom hides its most secret idol. So, I'm bracing for the wind. 
But I'm not going to be, I'm not going to shake and cry like Tony did about tomorrow's message, tomorrow's weather. It's, it's really kind of sad. Um, <laughs> I, I feel bad for, actually, he was very calm about it. I just want, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I like to lie, but then only up to a point, just, just a kiddingly lie. But he, he was actually very manful, very matter of fact, because usually he calls me a snowflake for saying we shouldn't have service. But this time he said, it looks like this is a real thing. So I said, okay. So that's the way he really is. His masculinity is not toxic. <laughs> it's real. Now then. What's the interpretive key? Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. Only the crucified Christ, whom God raised from the dead, makes sense of destruction and salvation being part of the same event. In any case, neither Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel, which Paul said earlier at the beginning of this argument, nor the concept of a historical remnant can soften the reality of all Israel being saved in the context of the whole of the human world being saved in the context of the restoration of all things by the cross of Christ. None of those things soften that. In Romans 9, 27 to 29, it seems that the objector may think he has a case. Now, I'm not saying this in cement. I'm not writing this in cement and letting it harden. I'm just assuming this right now. In Romans 9, 27 to 29, then, the objector may think he has a case. And I think Paul's anticipating that the objector might think he's got a case from these verses. He thinks that Isaiah is arguing for the final salvation, notice it, the final salvation of only a remnant of Israel. Now, I used to believe that as a fundamentalist Christian. I used to believe that, that the number of Israel will be unnumerable, but only a tiny remnant of them will finally be saved. But I didn't read on. I see, I never thought along. I didn't do the work like Ernst Cosman said, pay the price for investing myself totally in this argument to come to the conclusions that Paul later came to that, that do not contradict all Israel will be saved, that all Israel is saved in the context of the salvation of all humanity, and the salvation of all humanity is saved in the context of the redemption of all creation, the transformation, the liberation, the apokatastasis pantone, the reconciliation of all things, whatever you want to call it. Now I see that. So this, in Romans 9, 27 to 28, the objector may think he has a case. He makes this objection because his whole shtick or his whole spiel, his whole gospel, is to preserve a bias that only he and his hearers and the doers of the law will be saved and justified in the final day. But this objector fails on four points at least, four off the top of my head today. He fails to understand the scriptures in toto, the totality of the scriptures, in their primary function as a testimony to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and to the universally redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. Secondly, the objector fails to distinguish history from eschatology. There can be a small remnant in history, and there can be judgments on the mass of Israel and the mass of Israel not believing in history. But that has to be distinguished from eschatology, in which all Israel will be saved in the eschaton, which is the same way of saying all Israel will be saved in the Christ event, which will be manifested in the parousia, when he comes again, when he comes to be visible to all humankind, in which he will make visible the scars of his crucifixion in his resurrected humanity. So then, the second thing he fails to do is to, he fails 
to distinguish history from eschatology. The opponent, thirdly, fails to understand that Isaiah is actually bearing witness, as Hosea did, to a salvific judgment, a saving judgment, to Jesus as the judged judge. Fourth, he fails most of all to interpret the scriptures in no other light than that of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The objector apparently thinks he gains even more steam then by citing Isaiah 1.9 in Romans 9.29. And just as Isaiah predicted, he says, had the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Zavaot in the Hebrew, not left behind a seed, we would have become as Sodom. And we would have come to resemble Gomorrah. Now I'm going to close with this because with regard to comment on this verse, and I'm doing commentary here a little bit, I've elected to take an unusual direction in this because Sodom is referred to in this passage. Ezekiel 16.55. Let's look there just for a moment. I think you can handle all this content tonight. And all of it, most of it's in print, incidentally. I was reinvigorated today when I heard from my friend Taylor Tronzo, who's all the way up to number two in Romans, the second passage, the second message. I failed to say to him, we're on 102. No, but he's studying across a wide range of theologians, and he drops these insights on me that literally blow me away. I just, I'm astonished by it. So we have this fellowship by some means, email, I guess they call it. I don't know if it's G or E or M or whatever. It's on a symbol that says M. But anyways, I... Understood then, I started to look up some of the messages in print on the website because of what he said where he was. I want to see, what, what did I say? And I realized how important it is to read those notes, to take out 15 minutes and read Lesson 42 or Lesson 50. I'll show you the fruit of it. Paul Matthew's message is the fruit of studying his brains out and going over that stuff. And he brought a historic summation of the insights that God has given to us in the peak of our blessedness from God. So the importance of reading is the most important thing there is. It's been recently discovered that even the people in Silicon Valley that have discovered the whole new high-tech world won't send their kids to a school unless the school uses pencil and paper because they realize the value of that, and they realize sometimes even the incipient harm in looking at a screen and thinking that you're getting educated from the, from the new forms of technology. The old way of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and pencil and paper is still the best way to go. The people that invented the stuff send their kids to school where they learn that way. And they say, well, let the rest of the world think they're really evolving. So it's not fair, really. But one of the first lessons, we must teach our children. Take a pencil, write this down on a piece of paper. Life isn't fair. Exclamation point. So then, as Isaiah predicted, had not the Lord of the armies, had the Lord of the armies not left behind a seed, a small remnant, we would have become as Sodom and would have been come to resemble Gomorrah. But look at Ezekiel 16.55. The prophecy of Ezekiel says this, and your sister, he's speaking to Israel, your sister Sodom and her daughters will be restored. Guess what word he uses here? I'm going to have to write it down because it's actually... It, it, astonished me when I saw it. And I probably can't even pronounce it, but it's A-P-O-K. So far, it looks a little familiar. A-T-A. looks even more familiar. S-T-A-T-H-E accent. S-O-N-T-A-I. 
let me just put it this way. That's the verbal form of apocatastasis. It's the verbal form of apocatastasis. Your sister Sodom and her daughters will be restored. The future passive indicative form of the lemma. The lemma simply means the form of the verb as it appears in lexicons. It's the form of the word apa apokathistano, apokathistano. Used no less than three times in this one verse. The verbal form for apokatastasis is used three times in this verse, having to do with Sodom, Samaria, and Israel, all mentioned in one breath, with their daughters. Why their daughters? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. But when Lot escaped Sodom, he escaped with his daughters, not his wife. His wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt. Because Sodom had its own little Rodeo Drive, you know, its, a, its little shopping center. And she said, I'm going to miss it. She turned around, bang, there she is forever. A model, a mannequin, or a womanikin, womanikin. Lot escaped with his daughters. And your sister Sodom and her daughters will be restored. Her daughters will be restored. Just as they were from the beginning. Now he uses the word aparches, ap arches, which in Acts 3.21, from the beginning, means from time immemorial. He's saying Sodom and her daughters are going to be restored not to what they were before, because where they were before was ripe for judgment. He means I'm going to restore Sodom and her daughters to what God intended them to be in Christ from before history. How's he going to do that? They're dead. Sodom was completely wiped out. Everyone was killed in a fire. Not like the fire in California. At least I don't think it's from a fire from another world out there sent by judgment. They were destroyed by fire from another world. Not eternal fire, but fire from another world. And they were totally wiped out. So how can Sodom be restored? How can Sodom be restored to a condition that God intended to for her from the beginning, which means the be- before time, if not by resurrection. God's tool. So he says, this is my translation, and your sister Sodom and her daughters will be restored just as they were from the beginning, case, and Samaria and her daughters will be restored just as they were, and I translate it this way, intended to be from the beginning. And you and your daughters, Israel, will be restored to what you were intended to be from the beginning. Both Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out historically. However, Ezekiel makes the extraordinary prediction that Sodom and her daughters will be restored to God's original design for them. Presumably in the eschaton meaning via the Christ event. After all, Sodom was wiped out completely except for Lot and his wife and daughters, but his wife only made it halfway. How on earth can Sodom, and I ask this question seriously, how on earth can Sodom and her daughters be restored to a condition that God intended for them from the beginning, aparkes, which means really in Christ? If they were all wiped out in the historical catastrophe when fire from another world destroyed them, the answer is only by resurrection. Ezekiel's promise is eschatological. It is realizable only by means of and within the Christ event. When I say eschatology, I'm not referring to something out there. I'm referring to something back there called Calvary, which will become universally manifest out there in the parousia, the coming of Christ to be universally visible. So in closing, what is also remarkable about Yahweh's word through Ezekiel is that Sodom which was an entirely pagan people and her daughters, 
Then Samaria, which is a mixed people, half Gentile and half Jew, and her daughters, and Israel and her daughters are all mentioned together in one divine breath as objects of what is an eschatological restoration that brings them back not to their former condition before judgment under sin, death, and the hijacked law, but brought back to a condition that Yahweh intended for all of humanity and all of creation from the beginning. That is, his divine intention before history to savingly sum up all things in Christ in the RK. Ephesians 1.10 compared to Colossians 1.18 to 20. It is also remarkable that daughters are the focus here. Lot escaped Sodom with his daughters. His wife was turned to a pillar of salt. Moreover, consider Isaiah 43.6b, speaking of that restoration. Bring my sons from far away, God says, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49:22. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. This is speaking of the return, the restoration of all things. <clears throat> Again, in Isaiah 60 in verse 4, raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away, and your daughters will be carried on the hip. But in Isaiah 56, 5, he even goes further, and he says this, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. What? How can you have a name better than sons and daughters of God? I don't know. It's a new name. I don't know what it is. He then says, I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And still again, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 to 18, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The only way we come out from among the Adamic ontology is through the co-crucifixion with Christ. So it's imperative that all this talk about a remnant, a small limited number of people, is aimed at a final conclusion by Paul in stages. In Romans 11, 1 to 6, the 7,000 and the present election of a remnant according to the election or according to unconditional and uncontingent grace in Romans 11, 5 and 6 is representative of the whole of Israel who are saved eschatologically speaking, that is, in the event of the cross, which is cosmically manifested in the parousia. Paul's statement, not all Israel is Israel, that he made in Romans 9, 6, cannot soften or in any ways mitigate the universality of all Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six. Neither do these evidently limiting verses about only a remnant being finally saved in Romans 9, 27 to 29. Because again, according to Hosea 1, 9 in the Septuagint, U laos mu, not my people, will be called sons of the living God in the same place. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, says Romans 9.26. And in the place, Calvary, the crucified Messiah, where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So, Father, we thank you that your whole argument, the whole argument of your apostle to the nations, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, your whole argument that you have presented through your, through the use of the scriptures and most of all through an apocalyptic revelation of your son. Reveal a universally saving son 
a universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, a universal impact of the cross of Christ. And this in turn has an impact on us in the present, an impact toward unity, toward unit integrity among believers, an impact giving way to a faith that works by love. And we pray that this message will be heard beyond these walls, received beyond these halls, received in the hearts of many, so that the church, which is your hyper-conquering people in this age, can come back to a respectable unity that has impact in the world, missionary impact, impact toward a lost and dying generation, impact toward a generation that's hoping in political solutions, political leaders, and already failed human philosophies. We pray that the gospel will be unleashed and unchained, and a vision will be presented which will keep your people from perishing in this historical time.